uh, as we turn our attention to John 17, we are uh, coming out of the final discourse uh, with the disciples where we've spent weeks uh, looking at that last conversation that Jesus had uh, with his disciples as a group. Uh, he had shared with them some troubling news uh, back in John 13 going into 14, uh, news that uh, one of them was going to betray him, uh, news that he was going to be leaving them, uh, news that Peter, one of perhaps maybe the, the most passionate seeming of the group, was going to deny him. And upon receiving that news, it was evident that the disciples were a little troubled. They were perplexed at well, what, what's going on and what's to lie ahead. And so Jesus uh, went into this final conversation. And he really uh, brought about many uh, great things for the disciples to look forward to. He, he reassured them with some wonderful truths. If you were to scan back over the last few chapters... You would see uh, the good hope that Jesus gave his disciples that where he's going as he leaves, he's going to come back and bring them to be with him. That he's going to uh, send his uh, Holy Spirit to come and dwell with them. That uh, in him, that they'll be welcomed into this intimate fellowship and relationship uh, that he enjoys with the Father. And that as his followers, they get to uh, appreciate and be part of those things. Uh, he talks about the, the blessing of being able to abide in him and bear much fruit and the warnings that would come for those who don't abide in him. He told them that he no longer treats them as servants, but he considers them friends because he's kind of filled them in on what God's doing and what his plans are all about in chapter 15. At the same token, uh, Jesus gave them the news that things won't always go great in the days to come. That despite following him, despite having this this commission uh, to go and to carry on the ministry that they have been a part of, it doesn't mean that the world is going to be rejoicing at the message that they bear. There's going to be hard days ahead. There's going to be at times where they're going to be persecuted, even put to death for the sake of following Jesus. He gives them great hope as we ended last week, though, recognizing that their sorrow in the days to come as Jesus is going to go to the cross, He's going to breathe His last and be buried, that as the world rejoices, they will experience sorrow. But that sorrow will be transformed into joy. And nobody can take that joy away. Nobody. Jesus concluded that whole conversation with these words, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In John chapter 17, we get this glimpse into what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. Some think that that name makes it sound a little too rote, a little too, uh, you know, just structured and not so true and authentic. But if we, as we will over the next three weeks, looking at this prayer, we're going to see that we get a really special glimpse into the heart of our Savior. This is the longest prayer that we have recorded in the Scriptures that Jesus prays directly to the Father. He prays for His disciples. He prays for us. And those things are so reassuring, such a blessing. And we, we begin to see, as we will, uh, the many things that, that are on our Savior's heart as He's looking at His final hours. But as he begins this prayer in verse 1 of chapter 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. 
As we've talked about throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen this hour come up over and over and over again, right? For so long it was, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. My hour has not come. My time has not come. And in recent weeks, we've seen the hour has come. And here at the precipice of this hour, at this time that it has arrived for Jesus to go to the cross, it leads Jesus to a place of prayer, coming before His Father and presenting His requests before Him. And in some ways... If you were to really stop and think about it, you might wonder to yourself, well, why, why would Jesus pray? Why would Jesus pray? You, you could ask that question on the basis of, isn't He one with the Father? Doesn't He know the heart of God? Doesn't He know the plans and all the things that are about to take place? Doesn't He know that this is what it was all about? Doesn't He know that the mission was to go to the cross and what was going to be accomplished at the cross? And why pray? And as we see throughout the Scriptures, it's such a beautiful reminder that that Jesus does go to the Father in prayer, not uh, in spite of His recognition of the sovereignty of God, but because of the sovereignty of God. Because He knows that this has been the plan all along. Because He knows the Father's heart. Because He knows uh, what the Father has placed before Him, the call that's been placed on His life, He goes to the Lord in prayer. This should be a great encouragement for us as well as we, as we look at our Savior. Man, if, if He finds it so valuable to go to prayer, how much should we as well, huh? Because God has a sovereign plan. Because God is in sovereign control with supreme authority and supreme power over all things. Because if those things were not true, then what point would there be to pray at all? What good would it be to pray if God wasn't all-knowing? That He didn't know the inner workings of the whole universe and all of the things that He is working out, that He could be caught off guard by something. What good would it be? What good would it be to pray to a God who's not in supreme authority and power over all things? Because perhaps we're going to present a request to Him that He's just incapable of answering. We pray, Jesus prays, because of the sovereignty of God, as he looks at the hour ahead, knowing full well all that is going to take place, he comes to the Lord in prayer. And isn't it interesting the first things that he brings before the Father? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. How often is that our prayer? that God would be glorified. What does that mean? What does it mean? What is Jesus asking when He he asks the Father to glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify Him? What does it mean to glorify God? As we glorify God, do we add to His glory in some way? Do we increase the glory of God? I would argue no. Why? Because God is already infinitely glorious. He's already infinitely glorious. We can't add to His glory. He already is. Likewise, on the flip side, for those who choose not to glorify God, that doesn't rob Him of the glory. If no human ever glorified God, it would not change the fact that He is infinitely glorious. He is a glorious God because of who He is. 
I love, uh, I want to invite you to look to the screen if you want to turn there as well to, uh, first Corinthians, or first, not first Corinthians, it's the other C, first Chronicles, uh, chapter 16. Uh, David is at this point uh, presenting a prayer, a song of thanks uh, back to God. Some of this uh, very thing that he, he says here in First Chronicles is copied again. I believe it's in uh, Psalm chapter 29. And David, uh, amongst other things that he says, if we picked up in verse 25, says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord has made the heavens. He says, Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Then He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Get this. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It will never be moved. I think David's words kind of help frame, if you will, some of what this idea of is to to glorify God. He says uh, in that very passage, he says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. What he has done is he has outlined who God is. It begins with those very things, right? He talks about the Lord being great. He is greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. He says splendor and majesty are before him. He says strength and joy are in his place. And then he goes on and calls the people of Israel, calls his his following, calls himself to go and ascribe to God the glory that is due his name. And in the very context of what's going on in First Chronicles, God has just defeated the Philistines. And in other places there, David's calling the people to declare the works of the Lord. To remember his, to remember his wondrous works that he's done, his miracles, his judgments that he's uttered, all these things. And he, he's calling the people to stop and recognize who God is and what God has done. And in response to those things, to then ascribe to him the glory that's due his name. This is a helpful thing for us to stop and remember, to keep in mind. To glorify is to ascribe something to or to regard something or someone as. So as you and I glorify God, we do not make Him more glorious in His nature. He is already infinitely glorious. We help to display that glory. We regard Him as that glorious God that He is. It's a little bit of a change of perspective. We could define glorifying God as this, if you will. To glorify is to properly respond to revealed glory. To glorify is to properly respond to revealed glory. As God has revealed Himself to us in who He is, in what He has done, He has shown us a glimpse of Himself. So glorious is our God that we can never even fully wrap our minds around Him. How could us as finite beings come to a full understanding of an infinite God? How could we understand the depths and vastness of His glory? 
but as He reveals His glory to us, we would respond properly and glorify Him as such. Then the question becomes, is that what Jesus is talking about when He says, Father, glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You? Does the Father increase the glory of who the Son is? Does the Son increase the glory of who God is, the Father? If He is an infinitely glorious God, then the glorification is the response to that glory. The proper response. So what does it mean when Jesus says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you? It starts with this, that the Father would glorify the Son by approving of His sacrifice. The hour has come. All of this glorification, all of this glory that Jesus is speaking of, even right here, uh, hinges on this one thing, the hour. The hour being the cross. The hour being that very purpose of which the Son was sent to go to that tree, to be hung on the tree, to be lifted up. Much like uh, in the Old Testament, as God lifted up the ser- Moses lifted up the serpent under the instruction of God, that the people would look on him and believe. So too, the Son of Man, as Jesus said in John chapter three, must be lifted up. That's the hour that has come, as Jesus will breathe his last, as he'll be uh, tortured, mocked, killed, buried in a tomb, but will rise again. The hour has come. Glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. In verse 4, Jesus speaks of having accomplished all the work that that the Father had given Him to do. Culminating in the cross. And see, in, in that day and age, the cross wasn't how we view it today. They didn't have crosses in their, in their churches. They didn't have crosses hanging around their necks or hanging in their cars or the backgrounds on your phones. To them, the cross was a symbol of death. A criminal's death. In some ways, to make the context true for us, it would be like having a hangman's noose around your neck. It would have seemed strange. So how is it that God, now that's the request, that the Father would take the humiliation and suffering of the cross and transform it into the glory of the Son? That it would make it His glorification, the revelation of who He really is, that He would be glorified in it. It was the plan all along. The Father will do this as Jesus goes to the cross by approving of His sacrifice. I have accomplished everything, all the work that you have given me to do. Recognizing the perfect life that Jesus has lived. Recognizing that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He met the perfect demands of the law in its entirety. In its entirety. Knowing no sin not stumbling once, living an entire life in perfect submission to the Father, in perfect obedience to Him, full of humility, full of truth, truth, walking those difficult lines with perfection and precision. 
And he presents himself as a sacrifice. The Father approves of this. That in his blood shed, in his life laid down, is the atonement of sins for all who would believe. And so the Son is glorified by the Father. That there is no other way. There's no other way to the Father but to come through the Son. There is no other way but to to plead the righteousness of Christ. No other way but to live by faith in Him alone. As Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is it. And so the suffering and humiliation of the cross, of His sacrifice, becomes His glory. That all must come through Him. That the Father lifts up the Son. That all must look to Him. That that is His glory. And that at the cross, that humiliation, that suffering becomes the fulfillment of all of the types, all of the pictures and figures, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, all coming into fulfillment in the one person, Jesus Christ, the hour has come. That all of this points to Jesus. That all of the pictures that God had given and entrusted to the nation of Israel, all the sacrifices, year after year, day after day, all of the festivals, all of the things that God had given His people, culminating at this hour. And the Father glorifies the Son. As Jesus lived a perfect life, fulfilled the demands of the law, the Father approves of the sacrifice of His own life on behalf of us, sinners, enemies to a holy God. What an act of love. What greater love is than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. This is what has been all along. The Father glorifies the Son. Why? Jesus says, uh, ask the Father to glorify Him that the Son may glorify the Father. In other words, the Son must be glorified by the Father in order to then in turn glorify uh, the Father. Isn't it amazing that this prayer hinges here all on the focus of the glory of God? Jesus right now isn't even just asking for the pardon of the events that are to come, but for the glory of God in all things. Jesus goes on in verse 2 and says, Since you have given Him, speaking of the Son, authority over all flesh, not some flesh, not some people, the authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given Him. And so Jesus brings this picture about the, that as the Father glorifies the Son, approving of His sacrifice, the Son then glorifies the Father by attaining our salvation. He goes about to bring the eternal life for all that the Father has given Him. Remember the whole conversation that Jesus had about being the Good Shepherd. That He will not lose any of the sheep that the Father has given Him. That He will give all of them eternal life. 
It comes here. It comes here. And so what then is eternal life? If He is to give this eternal life to all who the Father has given Him, what is that? I know as a growing up in church, especially as a little kid, any of you guys had the experience where you gave your life to Christ like 18 times because you just wanted to, you wanted to be sure you weren't going to go to hell? You know, like you had that moment, you're like, dude, I've been, I've been tripping up a little bit, bad around the house, getting in trouble. I better, maybe I'm not really saved. So you give your life to the Lord again, and then in six months again, and again. Eternal life is much more than the get out of hell ticket. Much more than the get out of hell ticket. Eternal life is more than merely the temporally eternal existence. Isn't that how we think of it sometimes? That to have eternal life is to exist for all eternity. The Scriptures, what Jesus says, say that it's much more than that. All people have a temporally eternal life ahead of them, though it's not life. The Scriptures speak of an eternal judgment, an eternal fire, an eternal punishment that some are awaiting. The Scriptures speak of eternal blessing and joy that others await. All people await some sort of a temporally eternal future. Eternal life is much more than just time. Eternal life, Jesus says in verse 3, is this, that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Eternal life is to know God. How do we know God? Through the Son. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. And so, as Jesus has revealed the glory of God to us, we in turn recognize and respond to that glory appropriately and ascribe to the Father the glory that's due His name. Uh, look at what the Scriptures have to say. You'd remember at the beginning of John, chapter 1, verse 14. John writes, We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He'll finish up uh, in verse 18 of chapter 1 there. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Colossians 1.15, speaking of the Son, He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Guys, if we are to know God, we know God through the Son. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. Jesus has revealed God to us in a unique way, in a radiant and full way as He lived His life demonstrating the heart and will of God. Showing us, as Jesus could say to His disciples, if you've known Me, you've known the Father. 
So we know God and can perceive of His glory that is already His as an infinitely glorious God and respond appropriately by glorifying Him unto the glory of God. Because Jesus has revealed it to us. Jesus has secured it for us. We can't have this life apart from Him. And we have this life by what He accomplishes at the cross. Our sins nailed to the cross. Our guilt, the stain of our sins, washed clean. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We must go through the Son to have such an eternal life. And so this definition of life as Jesus gives it is much more than the I gotta wait till I die to experience eternal life. With the youth group, um, we would teach uh, what the gospel is and use this acronym that uh, included uh, life with God starts now and lasts forever. And, and that would be puzzling for some kids. But uh, this is why that's true. Because we may know God now. We don't have to wait for eternal life until the day we breathe our last and, and enter into eternity. We can have eternal life now because we can know the God, the God that we love and serve truly through the Son. And what I think is amazing is we will have the rest of eternity to learn more and more of His glory. To continue to come to a deeper understanding of how great and glorious our God is. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then finally, down in verse 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's leaving. That's been the message to the disciples for some time now. I'm, I'm taking off. I'm getting out of here. Where is He going? Back to the Father. So the Father glorifies the Son by accepting Him into His splendor. And this is huge. Because Jesus conquers the grave. And He is brought not just as a high priest into the Holy of Holies, but He has gone into the very throne room of God. Our Savior, our Mediator, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in His name, we are welcomed to come forth in confidence, in boldness. So that every prayer, every request that we present, every need that we have, every praise comes through the name of Jesus. God has exalted the Son to such a place that every knee is... Philippians uh, chapter 2 says, will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says at the end of that, to the glory of God the Father. This prayer that Jesus 
shares. As we'll talk about in the weeks to come, He prays for His disciples, He prays for us, but He first prays for Himself. He prays that God would be glorified. That in all things it is unto the glory of God. I believe it's Isaiah 47.3 where it speaks of all those who will love and serve God being created for His glory. Guys, you and I exist not for our own glory, not for our own accomplishments, not for the glory of Village Bible Church, not for the glory of Shabana or our communities, not for the glory of your workplace, not for the glory of the United States, not for the glory of all. We have been created for the glory of God. We are tied up in all of this. You and I, brothers and sisters, are tied up unto the glory of God. What an honor. What a blessing that is that we have been invited into the privilege of giving glory to an infinitely glorious God. Us! Sinners! Us, those who have fallen short, who have marred the image of God have been restored and reconciled by the Son and brought into such a relationship that we can magnify, that we can glorify, that we have the Son living in us, that as we become more like Him, we give a picture. That's amazing. That we can do mission trips and and ministries and all of these things and be a part of a church in a dark and broken world that is a beacon of light and hope and truth unto the glory of God. And so what? What are our takeaways? I encourage you to consider how you may glorify God with your life. You can glorify God in your worship. If you were to go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 29, after saying, Ascribe to the Lord glory due His name, David writes, Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I'd encourage you to to be intentional about worshiping and glorifying God in your worship. And I'm not talking about the closing song that we're going to sing in a few minutes. I'm not talking about waiting until next Sunday when we lift our voices again or when you're listening to the radio or or whatever you're doing. That's That's only a part of. I'm talking your life of worship. As humans, we have been created to worship. We are worshipers by nature. What or who we worship, that may be the question. But as believers, we worship the living God. So I encourage you with your life, as uh, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So whatever you find your hand to do, do it all unto the glory of God. Whether you eat, sleep, drink, or whatever. All for Him. If you're going on trips, if you're working behind a computer, if you're planning vacations, if you're raising your kids, whatever it is that you find your hand to do, do it for the glory of God. Because He's worthy above all things. And I encourage you to glorify God in your Word. First Chronicles 16 24 and 25, David says, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
I encourage you, use, use your testimony, the testimony of your own word for the glory of God. You have an experience. You have a story. Share it. Use it for God's glory. When's the last time you had a conversation with someone who just bragged about how great God is? Bragged about the amazing things that you have seen God do in your lifetime. When's the last time you had that conversation and just got all gushy about how great God is and you're just like, I, I, I don't even know how to say it. What do you have to say about God? How do you say it about God? Isn't there a difference to say something and you can say it so reluctantly Yeah, I love hanging out with my family, you know, it's like it's great. You know, Saturdays, you know, just yeah, we, we have a good time. We do fun things. We have so much fun. I love my kids, my wife, the time that we have to spend together, the, the fun activities we get to go do. Do we went to the zoo? We went to the aquarium and just to see their their faces light up, there's nothing like it. To to spend time with them, to see them developing and growing and, and just becoming who God's created them to be, there's no joy like it. To just an, uh, appreciate what God's given us. Isn't there a difference? Because when I first said, you'd be like, what a hoax. The words were right, but the heart was wrong. I want to encourage you with your words to examine your heart. That as you open your mouth and share with other people the glory of God and declare His glory among the nations, even here, do you do so with a reluctant heart? Or you do so with a heart of rejoicing. Because you have tasted and seen the glory of God. Glorify Him with your word. Finally, I encourage you to glorify God with your walk. Isn't it one thing to say something and do another? The way we conduct our lives is a beacon, if you will, a magnifying glass into our very hearts, our loves, our affections. That what you find yourself doing, how you find yourself doing it, shows what your deepest loves really are. So I encourage you to examine your life. And this is something we all ought to be doing on a regular basis. Lord, what are you calling me to? How can I use the season of life that you have placed me in right now for your glory? I've got little kids and Whatever it may be, I, my kids are out of the house. I'm retired. How can I serve you and use my life now? Do I live in such a way that others would look at me and see my good works and what? Glorify my Father in heaven. We have been invited into the great blessing and joy of 
of seeing the glory of God. So let it be said of us that we responded appropriately. That as we have recognized who God is, we have ascribed to Him the glory due His name. With the way that we live, the words that we say, and the attitude and affections of our heart. You never know how God will use your everyday life to His glory. You never know. This past week, one of my coaches from high school passed away. He's a young guy. He's got like seven kids, first grandkid on the way. Two-year fight with cancer, and he died this week. And it sucks, but it also doesn't. Because coach lived for the glory of God in all things. As a sophomore in high school when he coached me, and the man was an absolute beast. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean in the sense of he was massive. He competed in World's Strongest Man competitions, won a couple of them. I mean, the dude was huge. And you you didn't want to cross coach. Two years of cancer killed his body. But two years of cancer was a platform that God gave him to shout with his life the glory of God. I've watched from a distance for two years that as he coached high school boys basketball, that at the end of games he would bring both teams together at center court and share the hope that he has in Jesus Christ and pray with these young men. That as his body failed him, his Lord didn't. And so his coach breathed his last. I have watched and seen thousands thousands of people recognize that that man loved a God that was worthy of it all. I've watched people wrestle with how could God let something like that happen but then watch a man who on his deathbed preached the glory and goodness of God in all things. He told us as sophomores in high school he said all of us will have two dates written on our tombstones. All of us will die. And he said, every one of us will have a dash in between those two dates. And he said, what do you do with that dash is what matters. Because when that second date comes, you don't take anything else with you but what you did with that dash. And the most important thing is to live for Christ. 
I don't care what success you have. He won a state championship a couple years ago, and I saw a conversation he had with his teammates, and he said, with the trophy sitting right there, he's like, guys, this too will burn. But live for Christ in His glory, because that is everlasting. So I encourage you today to use the dash that God's given you. Use the platform that He's given you now for His glory. You don't know how God may use all things, but He has brought us into this relationship and given each of us this opportunity to respond to His glory revealed in His Son and to ascribe to Him the glory that is due His name. So I'll leave you with that question that He left with us. What will you do with the dash to bring glory to God?